Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week we have six very short episodes of Incredible But True. Each one is only about three minutes long. The episodes first aired in 1951. There are few of us who have not, at one time or another, had the sensation of reliving an experience which is actually new to us. Indeed, so common is this phenomenon that among psychologists it has acquired a technical name. But there is on record one case of a man who actually was familiar with a world that was new and strange. It was business that took George Lawton to England in the spring of 1914. But after he had spent a few days in London, he succumbed to the temptation to visit his friend, Paul Bixby, who made his home in the historic old town of York. Lawton had never visited York before, and so almost as soon as he arrived, Bixby insisted on taking him for a long walk. He wanted most of all to show him the famous cathedral known as the Minster. We're not terribly far from it now. I know you want to see it, George. You probably know it by the name of St. Paul's Cathedral. Is that how they refer to it in the States? I say, George, do they refer to it as St. Paul's in the States? George! What? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I guess I wasn't listening. What's the matter with you, old boy? You seem so, well, so distracted. It's a crazy thing, Bixby. This feeling I have, as if everything around here were familiar. I could swear I'd been here before. I'm absolutely sure I know this town. Why, I could find my way from one end of it to the other. (laughs) Don't be absurd, George. You couldn't find your way from here to the Minster. There are all sorts of twists and turns before we get there. Well, I won't get lost. Watch me. And with that, George Lawton started off ahead of his friend. So quickly did he move, and with such absolute certainty, that Bixby found it difficult to keep pace with him. Down winding streets he went, and through crooked alleys. And when at last he came to a halt, he was standing at the old west door of the Minster. And Bixby, coming up to him breathless from exertion, gasped, My thought! That's amazing! How on earth did you manage to do it? But Lawson was not paying very close attention to his friend. His eyes were fixed on a corner a half block down the street. A corner occupied only by a vacant lot. Whatever happened to the inn, Bixby? The one that used to be on that corner down there. There never was an inn there. At least, uh, not that I can recall. But there must have been some time or other. I remember it distinctly. Later that afternoon, the two men sat in the dusty corner of the public library, huddled over an old map of the city. With eager fingers, they located the Church of St. Paul's. And then they followed the line of the street westward to the nearest corner. And there, they found a legend, written in very small script. Sight of the Golden Ox. Famous old inn. Destroyed by fire in 1628. And so George Lawton, who had never been to York before, found that he not only knew his way around the streets, but that he even remembered a building which had not been there for almost 300 years. Is it absurd to suggest that this was actually his second visit to York? That in some former life he may even have been a resident of the ancient city? Perhaps it seems absurd. And yet, what other explanation can be offered for this baffling mystery? A mystery incredible but true. (laughs) 
The history of the workers' long and bitter struggle for a decent standard of living has been marked now and then by acts of overt violence. But there is only one case on record where such acts were committed without the knowledge or the conscious will of the workers involved, where their anger itself seemed to become an invisible force of destruction. The remarkable affair began on the 15th of September, 1921. It was on that day that Mrs. Courtney was going about her customary domestic chores. When suddenly, without warning... An investigation into the cause of the explosion was conducted. And after a very thorough inquiry, the official in charge issued a rather startling statement. There can be no question as to what caused the explosion. It occurred in a grate in the Courtney living room, and in that grate there was absolutely nothing but coal. In short, it was the coal itself which exploded. During the remainder of 1921, reports of mysterious explosions came from various parts of England, from France, even from Belgium and Switzerland. The climax came on the 1st of January, 1923, when no less than six homes in Paris were reduced to ruins. The coal which appears to have been responsible has been extracted from British mines. British miners have been intensely agitated over what they believe to be an unjust reduction in their wages. But the conclusion which the official wished the public to draw was unmistakable. It was the miners themselves who had inserted dynamite or some other explosive substance into the coal before it was distributed. We're agitated all right, as the gentleman puts it, and we got a right to be. And we're going to win a living wage for ourselves and our families. But we won't do it by taking the lives of innocent people. And we challenge his nibs to find one ounce of dynamite in any lump of coal that's been mined in England. The explosions continued. And even when they were not of serious proportions, they were accompanied by examples of extraordinary behavior of the coal itself. There was, for instance, the report of the police inspector who visited the home of Mr. T.S. Frost. He uh, summoned me to his house, Mr. Frost did. He pointed to a bucket of coal. I looked in, and the coal was exploding right there in the bucket. And all the while, little lumps are jumping out all around us and flying right through the walls of the room without leaving no mark behind. Nor was the police inspector the only one who bore witness to these astounding events. There was the Reverend A.L. Gardner, vicar of St. Gabriel's. And there were all the townspeople who assembled at a public meeting to discuss the mysterious affair. None of them could explain it. Indeed, the only adequate explanation for the whole sequence of explosions was one offered at the time by a certain unidentified miner. We never put no dynamite in the coal, but don't forget they've been cutting our wages and we've been starving. And we're angry men. And anger itself is dynamite. Who's to sigh that our anger ain't strong enough to transmit itself, so to speak, into a lump of coal? That the emotions of the oppressed and the underprivileged could be communicated to an inanimate object. This is beyond belief. And because it is beyond belief, the story of the exploding coal remains to this day incredible but true. The floor of the ocean has always been associated with strange legends and fantastic creatures. Most of these are, of course, mythical figures, but there is on record in a serious and scientific publication of the Danish Meteorological Society 
a description of a form so incredible that it staggers the imagination of man, a form which actually exists and was actually observed. The steamship Bintang was a merchant vessel belonging to the Danish East Asiatic Company. At three o'clock on the morning of June 10th, 1909, it was plowing its way through the calm waters of the Straits of Malacca. At 3.15, Captain Gabe, who had retired several hours before, was awakened from a sound sleep. One of the crew was pounding violently at his door. What is it? Captain, Captain, open the door, sir. Holy! What is it, man? Good Lord, what's happened? By the dim rays of the lantern, the captain could see the expression on the sailor's face. He could see the pallor of his cheeks and the stark terror in his eyes. Well, answer me, man. What happened? You'd better come up and see for yourself. It's, it's a wheel, sir, on the water. Or I should say in it. And, and it is coming toward us. And if one spoke of it even so much as touches us, we will be smashed in a thousand pieces. On deck, Captain Gabe found the entire crew huddled at the rail on the starboard side. There was silence and motionless, frozen with fear. And then he clutched the arm of the sailor beside him and gasped, What in the name of heaven is that thing? As far as the eye could reach, the sea was illuminated, illuminated by a great wheel of light that revolves slowly just beneath the surface of the water. The fiery center of the wheel, though far out, was clearly visible. From it extended the spokes to which the sailor had referred. Arms so long that they stretched beyond the horizon on one side and came within 30 yards of the boat on the other. And as they turned on their axis, they moved closer and closer to the ship's keel. It's an optical illusion, men. There's no wheel out there at all. It must be the reflection of our own light. But they never heard of a reflection stretching clear to the horizon. And I never saw one moving at a different speed and in a different direction from the thing that's being reflected. Well, that's true. Perhaps another ship somewhere. But the lookouts reported five minutes ago that there ain't another ship around, sir. The captain and the crew stood staring at the monstrous mechanism, waiting for it to strike. And then, slowly, the light of the wheel grew dimmer. And the whole apparatus seemed gradually to sink deeper into the water. The ship glided smoothly and safely over the spot where it had been, and nothing remained as evidence that it had ever been seen. The submarine voyager, some have suggested, a visitor from space, has been the opinion of others. While most have simply accepted it as one of the many insoluble mysteries of the sea. A mystery... Incredible, but true. In today's modern world, we tend to ridicule the idea that there are people possessed of the power of transforming themselves into animals. Yet, every now and then, a story appears in the chronicles of the strange and the incredible that makes us pause to wonder. Consider, for example... The case of Carl Janus. When the writer Maurice Russell retired to a lonely cabin in the mountains of northern Georgia, he took with him voluminous notes which were to form the basis of his next novel. But he did not know then that the most intriguing, the most tantalizing story that he would ever write 
lay not in his carefully kept files, but in the creature who bore the name of Carl Janus. Yes, come in. Good morning. The sound of that voice, Russell whirled around. My name's Janus. I just moved into the hut down the valley. Well, I... I'm glad to know you. His new neighbor's appearance had shocked him to the core. His brows were shaggy, and his black beard failed to conceal his remarkably powerful jaws. The hands were covered with thick hair and tapered off in long, dirty, claw-like nails. His front teeth protruded like fangs. Why, he's like an animal. A week later, Russell stumbled on the answer. It was during a conversation with another neighbor, Saul Pritchard, who had dropped into the cabin with a piece of bad news. Tom Westerfield's boy, walking along the road last night, and all of a sudden this critter jumped out at him and turned near Tom to pieces. Says it might have been a big dog or a wildcat or even a wolf. That's it, of course. That's what he looks like. A wolf. In the two months that followed, four other men were also attacked. And then, on a certain night, when Saul Pritchett was returning from a trip to town, his wagon had just rounded a sharp curve on Little Balls Mountain, and suddenly his horse reared back and whinnied in terror. It's the wolf. As he spoke, the wolf, who had been crouched on a boulder at the side of the road, sprang through the air. Saul Pritchard seized the pitchfork that lay beside him in the wagon. He raised it in front of him to guard himself, and the beast's body, hurtling against the improvised weapon with terrific force, was impaled on the ground. Saul did not wait to see whether it was dead or not. But the following morning, searchers who returned to the scene found only the bloody pitchfork. Afterward, as time passed, and no more attacks ensued on the roads around Bald Mountain the inhabitants concluded that they were at last rid of the killer. But the writer, Maurice Russell, has added a significant footnote. A few nights after Saul Pritchard's encounter with the wolf, Russell and Pritchard visited Carl Janus' hut. No one responded to their knocking. Janus lay motionless on his bed. His shirt front was stained with blood. Russell unbuttoned the shirt and examined the body carefully. That pitchfork you used, Saul... It has three prongs. Yes, that's right. Why do you ask? Because there are no holes in Carl Janus' chest. But there are three deep gashes in his chest. Yes, the man, Carl Janus, the man whose appearance in the community had been simultaneous with the appearance of the wolf, had died with marks on him which one might have expected only the wolf to bear. Let those who scoff at the werewolf tradition, let them explain this. Astonishing story. A story incredible but true. There was nothing uncommon about the ghost at the Royal Irish Constabulary Barrack. And the only reason for singling him out is just because he was typical. Because he was responsible for things which simply couldn't happen if there were no ghosts. The old house, which had been chosen as a police barrack, seemed particularly cozy and comfortable to Constable Kelly on that bitter winter night when he came off duty at 12 o'clock. The rest of the force had retired. The guard was nowhere in sight. And so the constable settled down in the kitchen, removed his shoes, and placed his frozen feet on the hob before a blazing fire. He had just lit his pipe and taken one or two deep, satisfying puffs when he heard... Now, it was not an unfamiliar sound... The lockup was a one-story lean-to opening off the kitchen. 
inebriated gentlemen would frequently awaken in the middle of the night and express their righteous indignation by rattling the iron door of their cell. The sound was repeated with increasing vigor, and at length Constable Kelly's compassion outweighed his sense of propriety. He arose and, taking a candle from the table, approached the door to the lean-to. Selecting a key from his key ring, he opened it. There were two cells in the lockup, one behind the other, and the iron door stood between them. Constable Kelly found the first one empty. Well, no. That's a queer thing indeed. And so it was. For the constable's candle revealed that the second cell was empty also, and the iron door was locked and bolted. Carefully locking the door behind him, the constable returned to his place by the fire. But barely had he relit his pipe when... No. No. What in the world was that? He jumped to his feet again, picked up the candle, and once more strode toward the lean-to. But before he reached it, he stopped abruptly and staggered back with a gasp of amazement. Great! Jump into Hartford. Both doors are wide open. Yes, both doors. The iron one which he knew had been bolted, and the outer wooden one which he himself had locked with his own key, both were standing ajar. And there was no one but himself, either in the cells or in the kitchen. The following evening, Kelly was assigned to guard duty. He had brought his mattress downstairs and had laid it across two tables in the center of the room. Now he picked up a magazine and, stretching himself out on the makeshift bed, began to thumb through its pages. It was at that moment that the thing happened. Now, who's doing that? Stop it, will you? Cut it out! Stop trying to shove me out of bed! The constable leaped to his feet and threw back the covers. He looked under the table on which the mattress was resting. He glanced slowly and cautiously around the room. Well, now, I must have been dreaming. And having thus reassured himself, T started to lie down, but... Hey! What's in the name of him? Hey! Oh! Well, now, what do you know about that? Not until he had removed his bed to another part of the room was Constable Kelly able to remain in it for more than 30 seconds. This was not the last of the strange events which occurred at the Royal Irish Constabulary, and which were attested to by all of the officers who resided there. We may glibly say that there are no ghosts. But then how shall we account for the thousands of authenticated ghost stories? Stories incredible but true. Death under mysterious circumstances is not unusual, but the case of J. Temple Thurston differs somewhat from the regular pattern. Although years have elapsed since the night of his passing, no one yet knows how or why he died. It is presumed that the Thurstons quarreled in the winter of that year, 1919, and decided to go their separate ways. For by April, the family had scattered, the servants had been dismissed, and the house stood empty. And so, had an alert neighbor not noticed the flicker of flame behind one of the second-story windows, Holly Manor probably would have burned to the ground. But the alarm was promptly turned in, and within a very short time, fire engines were ruffling the early morning calm of the highly respectable suburban street. The flames had made but little headway, and before another quarter of an hour had passed, they were extinguished. But in the water-soaked and acrid-smelling room upstairs, where the fire had occurred, two members of the company, who had remained behind to investigate the causes of the fire, were looking at each other with considerable perplexity. It's a cold one all right, ain't it, Captain? Nobody in the house, 
No dirty rags or crossed wires or nothing like that. No fireplace, no smell of paraffin. Seems like it must have flared up right here in the middle of the room. It was heading toward that door there, but it never got that far. Wonder where the door leads. Bedroom, I suppose. Let's take a look. It was a bedroom. And the two firemen, standing on the threshold surveying it, saw that it had not been touched by the fire. Even the smell of smoke was scarcely perceptible. Everything's ship-shape here, Captain. You wouldn't even know that the... God, blimey, Captain, look. In that chair there, ain't that the top of a man's head? The chair was facing the windows, its back to the door. It's Jake Temple Thurston, Captain. I've seen him often. You mean it was Jake Temple Thurston? Aye. He's a dead one, all right. Captain... What was he doing sitting here fully dressed at three o'clock in the morning? He wasn't drinking. He wasn't reading a book. He was just sitting. And why did he go on sitting after the fire started? Must have been dead already. But what did he die of? Oh, trouble, perhaps. He didn't burn to death, we know that. His clothes ain't even scorched. Aye, but... But... Captain, look. His ankle. The captain glanced down. He saw the flesh of Thurston's ankle showing from beneath the bottom of his trousers. And then both men began ripping the clothes from the lifeless body. In another moment, the figure in the chair was nude, and the firemen were staring at it, their eyes opened wide in amazement and disbelief. Blow me. Not a mark on his head or his clothes, but his body is burned to a crisp. Jade Temple Thurston had died of heart failure. The coroner's jury ascertained that. That his death preceded the fire seemed probable, since he apparently had made no effort to summon help or to extinguish it. But how a dead man's body, sitting in a room where the flames did not enter, garbed in clothes that were completely unscorched, could be burned to a crisp, is a mystery that remains unsolved. A mystery incredible but true. Similar to Ripley's Believe It or Not, this show has short three-minute descriptions of miracles, monsters, and myriad mayhem. But they're all true. Well, let's not get too carried away with the true part, but at least these phenomena are believed to be true by some people. The narrator, Ken Nordine, describes a seemingly supernatural event and a brief dramatization of the event. The show was produced by Unusual Features Syndicate and aired on the Mutual Network. There was a longer version of the show with 15-minute episodes. And remember, it's incredible but true. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.